Welcome everyone to our NCAA Social Series. I'm Andy Katz. Pleased to be joined by one of the two 2022 Inspiration Award winners at the NCAA convention in Indianapolis this winter. Bob Grant. Bob, you were one of three, three individuals who integrated major sports, sports in general, in the ACC in the 60s, playing football at Wake Forest before your NFL career with the Baltimore Colts, playing in two Super Bowls, Super Bowl three and five. Bob, if you can take me back to 1964 and paint that landscape for me, what was it like attending a university in the South as an African-American man? Uh, it was trying. And we were not just the first in the ACC, we were the first in the entire South. Wake Forest did that in 1964. And it was in the middle of the civil rights era. Medgar Evers, uh, the civil rights icon, uh, the, about oh, eight or nine months before had been assassinated in his yard, front yard. Uh, President John Kennedy, uh, about eight or nine months before we entered, had been assassinated there uh, in November of that year. The bombings that took place in Birmingham, Alabama, that killed the little girls down there was just a few months before we took that job on. I guess you could say that it was. Uh, America in the South was segregated, divided by race and class. And much of America was segregated uh, during those years, too. But of course, in the South, we had the Jim Crow laws and things that were going on uh, there. I don't think we had the vote uh, you know, at that time, but it, it, it was a difficult time uh, with, as far as when Dr. Harold Tribble, who was president of Wake Forest University, decided that he was going to make Wake Forest the school in the South that integrated college sport following Maryland, which was the Yankee school, not in Dixie, uh, so we didn't consider them in the South. Uh, the great uh, Daryl Hill had transferred from the Naval Academy there one year prior to that, but they were not situated in the South when Dr. Tribble decided that he was going to have Wake Forest in Winston-Salem, North Carolina, integrate. Uh, I ended up being a part of that during a very trying time in this country. So I'm always amazed at the courage of individuals like yourself in the 60s when you didn't have to do that. There were other opportunities, obviously not to that level, um, but obviously you were an elite athlete. Why did you feel that the timing was right for you to take on a challenge like that, to put yourself in a position like that? It really wasn't my decision coming out of high school having uh, more than 40 scholarship offers from all over the nation, I had committed to Michigan State because I knew that Michigan State was going to win a national championship 
uh, over the next four years or so, we all had to play one year of freshman ball at all major universities back then. So I figured that the timing was right by accepting the scholarship to Michigan State that I was going to get to be on a championship team uh, when, much to my surprise, you know, my high school coach, who was one of the first black Marines to enlist in the United States Marine Corps, when they integrated the Marine Corps, Gideon Thomas Johnson, probably the greatest high school coach of all time anywhere, most difficult uh, man to play for because he was absolutely a perfectionist, would kick your behind who had a better left hand than Larry Holmes or Muhammad Ali. Um, whenever you made a mistake, uh, under him we trained the way that uh, the Marine Corps trained in boot camp. During the school year, uh, our practices ran from oh, 5.30 to 6 o'clock at night until 11 o'clock every, every night. Uh, and that was during the season, during the school year. And you had best be at school the next day Nobody had cars. We hitchhike home. You'd best be at school the next day and have all of your homework done, too, or you'd catch some of those lefts and rights that he would uh, throw at you there. But uh, I had signed with Michigan State and was committed to going there. And uh, he called me into his office, and uh, I know that we were running a little short on time, and the way the conversation went was... Sit down, young lad. You, whenever he said that, you would usually admit you were in trouble. I thought, oh, my God, what have I done now? Uh, I sat down. He held up a picture. He says, do you know who this white man is? I looked at you know, no, sir. That's the way that we spoke then. Uh, we were colored. You guys were white. Uh, do you, know, do you know who this white man is? I says, you know, no, sir. This is Coach Bill Tate. He just signed on up there at Wake Forest. President of the school and Coach Tate are getting ready to integrate college sport in the South. And I thought to myself, well, what are you telling me that for, Coach? I, I'm going to Michigan State to get on that national championship team that they have at Cumming. But you didn't talk back to your elders then, whatever your coach said or your parents said, grandparents in my case, you went along with. And I says, oh, Coach, I've signed with uh, Michigan State. Like you already says, no, no, this is where we're going, baby. And I thought, well, you tell me that I'm going. You, you, you're not going. But I wasn't going to say that to him, too. He says, sit down, we'll write him this letter and tell them that you're going to turn all the other scholarships down if they want you. <laughs> I knew they were going to let you take me. Uh, I was one of the top three or four uh, athletes in the state uh, of North Carolina at that time. Um, I ended up going to Wake Forest. It wasn't really my first choice, but... Uh, as he said, Yo, you, you're the person for this job. You can do this. You have those kind of leadership skills. And I was thinking, I, 
I want to go to Wake Forest. They've lost 19 games in a row, and they had. But that is the way that I ended up at Wake Forest. What kind of discrimination did you endure while at Wake? You can name it uh, from cross burnings. One, you're in front of our room. Won't make the school too happy because you know, they have corrected things since then with the new people who are there like you now from waking up at night with and finding that uh, gasoline had been poured under your door with a note that says that's left outside on your door that says next time we're going to bring the matches inward. They didn't know how to pronounce Negro. Sometimes we were colored, sometimes we were Negroes back then. Uh, on campus, for the first two years for you for sure, our family was the three of us and Jim Carter, who was uh, another black student from, uh, I guess they figured we had to have an even number of us there, uh, from uh, the New York area. That was our family. And the athletes on campus, that was our family. We were not included in any of the campus activities. We would keep count. There were tw about 26 people on campus, on the entire Echo campus, who were comfortable enough to stop and have a conversation with us. Uh, those were just the times. What about your teammates? Our teammates were solid. Had a little problem with one individual. There's no need in calling his name, but I straightened him out privately pretty quickly. Uh, the, um, the coaching staff was our family. The athletes were our family. Dr. Tribble. Uh, the president of the school, Dr. Gene Hooks, and probably about seven of the professors like on the staff. Otherwise, it was uh, pretty you know, rough going with things taking place like you work all semester on a term paper and the term paper is turned in and you have a professor called you in and said, who wrote this? Ask you, who wrote this? You say, I did, I've worked on it all, all semester. And they said, well, no, you know, you, you couldn't have. A colored person is not capable of doing this kind of work. It's an A paper, but we're going to give you a C. But uh, my grandfather had prepared me for all of this. It didn't really faze me. I knew why I was there. I knew what my job was. And uh, I knew what contribution I had to make. I knew that I could not allow myself to be intimidated. Uh, I, wasn't, I never marched in any of the demonstrations, even though I knew Dr. King. Dr. Abernathy, Malcolm X, all those people, you know, were people that 
I met with the new by name and they were always trying to recruit us. But, uh, you know, my grandpa, who raised me, who was born in 1894, very successful uh, man, black man, especially for that you know, time and period there, instructed me the one time when I was in high school and uh, I was all excited because uh, Dr. King and some of the other people, they were marching with the nonviolent thing. And he says, my grandpa said to me, uh, I says, I'm going to march. I'm going to march, Grandpa. I was like maybe 14 or 15, maybe 15 then. And he says, aren't uh, you know, those the people who go out there and they don't believe in fighting back? And I said, yes, sir. He says, so if somebody hits you, you can't defend yourself. You can't hit them back. If somebody hits you in the head with a brick, you, you can't, those people don't fight back, right? I said, yes, sir. He says, I'd be very disappointed in you if you march with anyone that way. I want you to always fight back. I want you to always defend yourself. Never start to take your trouble, but always be willing to stand up for yourself and defend yourself. So I knew all of them, and they were always trying to recruit us into the different organizations, SNCC, CORE, the NAACP, the Nation of Islam, and they would come through town and take us to lunch because being the three, the only three that were playing in the South, we were the point of the spear for them in the Civil Rights Movement. Uh, we didn't play against other black athletes up until the time I was maybe a junior or a senior. Uh, so we were cordial. They would take us to lunch. They looked out for us as best they could. But uh, my commitment was to Wake Forest, and my commitment was to the uh, job that I felt that I had our the job that my grandpa and my coach had, and Dr. Tribble had given me. Racism then, overt, in your face. Um, in the decades since, not just in college athletics, sports world obviously in the, in the country at large, how have you seen it change as the decades have moved on? Oh, we've had tremendous changes, and I am really disturbed you know, today when I see so many people ignoring the changes that have taken place, I'm an American, and I'm an American patriot. I don't need anybody's stars and stripes for you belong to me. My grandpa served. I grew up at Camp Lejeune did all of my early training as a young man, especially not being able to make the high school team the first year that I tried out. I was the only player in the history of the high school that was ever cut in his first year, the only player. And with the training that I had with all of my friends on base, I was on base at Camp Lejeune, uh, America's largest amphibious base. Uh, every day in the gyms, in the weight rooms, et cetera. 
I love America. I wouldn't want to live anyplace else. With a lot of people who are complaining, we have lots of airports here, you know, if they don't want to leave. I have ancestors that fought for this country also. That flag belongs to me as much as it does you know, anyone else, and I will always honor you know, that flag. In this country, there are a lot of people today who say that uh, blacks do not have a level playing field. And that's true, but things are getting better and better all of the time. Uh, but I never cared much about having a level playing field. The only thing that I ever worked for and I ever wanted was an opportunity. My grandpa was a part of boxing champion Jack Johnson's, the first black heavyweight champion of the world, was part of his entourage for many years. He was a young, young man at that time. So Jack Johnson was, you know, his hero and was, of course, became my hero because I spent so much time with him and heard all the stories about the kind of man that uh, Champion Jack was and the things that he had to go through at that time. So my grandpa put me on the road. I felt that my number one job was to become a champion, uh, the same way that Champion Jack was. But to wrap up on uh, you know, what you have asked me about have things changed? There are a lot of people in this country who don't have a level playing field today. Women still do not have a level playing field in this country. We can improve. Some minorities don't have a level playing field you know, in this country. The way that things are going, like, you know, politically, the way that they are attacking white men, well, white men don't really have a level playing field like you anymore. It's almost a crime to be a white man if you listen to some things that are being said in this like your country. Opportunity is what the United States of America you know, offers. Uh, having a level playing field is something that is not necessary to be successful. How did you choose to inspire people that came behind you in the decades since you played at Wake Forest? That's a very difficult question. I guess I guess I would start out by saying I try to give what people like Coach Johnson gave to me, what Don Shula gave to me, what George Allen gave to me, what Dr. Tribble gave to me, what Coach Bill Tate gave to me, what my grandpa, I tried to give the same thing that people gave to me. And that is, I try to let people know that there is hope. And uh, I assure them that this is not a perfect world that we live in. It's not a perfect world for anyone. I try to impress upon not just the young people, but the people that I speak with uh, corporately and traveling also, 
there's an old saying, I don't know where it comes from, that, uh, and I'm paraphrasing poorly here, I know, that we're all born equal. Well, that's not true. Uh, perhaps on a spiritual level, we're all born equal. But I could have practiced basketball from the time I was one year old until my 75 years of age. I would never have been the basketball player that Michael Jackson, uh, Jordan, Jordan, yeah. Michael Jordan has been, or the entertainer that Michael Jackson you know, was. We are all born spiritually equal, I think, but we are all born with unique and different gifts and talents. And it is up to each individual to find out what their passion is, what their talent is. And I believe that there is something that everyone can excel in if they will listen to their own heart and not listen to your parents or your friends and your, oh, we want you to be a lawyer, we want you to be a football player, we want you to be a doctor. Do what you love because you can be good at that if you dedicate your life to that. So I, I think that I'm a pretty unique individual that I can honestly say this. And maybe there are not a lot of people in America who can say it in the world I know. My every dream has come true as a young boy. The life that I have lived is the exact life that I pictured when I was six years old, when I was seven years old. I didn't know that it was going to happen, but because of those people who are an inspiration to me, I guess that I kind of <laughs> ended up becoming an inspiration to other people, but I'm standing on the shoulders of other people. Uh, with the award that I'm getting here from the great NCAA, and I'd like to say something about the NCAA also, uh, I'm almost embarrassed uh, to accept it. Why? Uh, well, because it's not just me. You know, with anything that uh, I've done, if there's a name on an award, and if there is, there should be a few hundred other names on that award, too. So uh, yeah, I'll accept it because that's the way that it's there, but you know, I don't deceive myself into believing that I'm really all that. Well, congratulations, because it is well-deserved. As you said, you've... Uh, lived an incredible life, there's more to give, and you continue to do so, um, certainly with your peers and those that have come after you. Appreciate you taking time, Bob. Thank I won't you. get to, can I say one yes, other please thing do. to you about the NCAA? Please. Because I do appreciate, you know, what's happening here. The NCAA got a pretty rough road when you're working with a lot of young men. There are a lot of people who've been, you know, quite critical. And with 
everybody that knows me in the NFL down through the years, the NFL office, the retired players, with my being chairman of the board of the retired NFL players, thank you, Congress, I bite my tongue for no one. I speak truthfully whenever I can. The NCAA, as an organization, has opened the door to and created more young black millionaires than any organization in America. The NBA with their 650 players or so each year, and the, the NFL uh, has uh, about uh, 3,000 guys with the guys who get injured and are called up every year, every year. Every young man that attends the university, the universities that are members of the NCAA, with those who go into professional sports, as I said, in the NFL, there are 3,000 of them at all times. All of them are millionaires from the first day they sign on with the NFL. The median salary in the NFL is $850,000. So then there only may be one or two guys that are making that $850,000. There are not a lot of them. Most guys in the NFL make one million, make a million dollars a year. You, no one can name another business in America that has created that many minority millionaires, all young men, and their now what they do with their money is their uh, business and, and, and affair there. Uh, with those who do not go on to play in the professional like your ranks, they get four years of schooling. Some of them become school teachers doctors, lawyers, chemists, salespeople. I guess we could name any other professions. But they don't end up, you know, very often humping sacks of corn down at the local feed store. So we're talking today about should the players be paid? It's a can of worms that I understand what's being said. And yes, the universities do benefit financially from that, but the universities do give back. And I just explained to you what the universities and the NCAA does for so many people via education and opportunity. Uh, I hope that they're able to work that out, but that is a can of worms that... Uh, I personally don't see how they can be fair because if an individual is an all-star quarterback, an all-American quarterback uh, at Alabama, and he's getting paid some kind of way or he's taking in endorsements, and we have a quarterback who's at Jackson State with Coach Deion Sanders, and he's just as good 
Uh, but he chose to go to that school. Uh, will he be paid the same? Will he have the same opportunities? So I don't see how it can really be done fairly. I hope that they can work something out. But uh, you know, as far as I'm concerned, the NCAA and the universities in this country have done a wonderful job of giving so many young men and women opportunity. I agree. I appreciate you saying that. Thank you. Once again, congratulations on an incredible honor, well-deserved, and I wish you nothing but the best health and happiness. Uh, as always, you can uh, go to ncaa.org slash social series, where all our social series are archived. Thanks for watching, everyone.